We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings independent and interesting science, technology, engineering and maths from Tasmania. The show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Head to edge.org.au for more info. My name is Sophie Calabretto, and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners on the land on which we are recording, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, we pay our respects to elders past and present. Now today, we're getting a little bit physics-y, so we're going to be talking about physics, biomedical imaging, and something called Acrobeat, which is a new technique for imaging patients. Very excited to talk about that with our guest, Dr. Tess Reynolds from the ACRF ImageX Institute at the University of Sydney. Tess is a physicist, University of Sydney fellow, and the thoracic team lead at the ACRF ImageX Institute at the University of Sydney. Her work aims to provide a future with faster, safer, and smarter medical imaging for everyone. So Tess, first off, thank you very much for joining me. Um, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on Twix. No worries. So, okay, well, I always do this when I talk to sort of the more mathsy, physicsy guests, Tess, because often people don't understand why we do the things that we do. So physics, why physics? How did you get into physics? What drew you to the subject? Yeah, I mean, I must admit, physics is probably not the first thing that everyone grows up wanting to study. But for me, it was. Um, I can't really put like a, you know, day that I just woke up and decided to be a physicist. But I think from a young age, I just was always interested in finding out how things work, Mm -hmm. why things they are the way they are. And when I got a bit older, I realized that things like maths and physics is a great way to actually understand what is going on in the world around us. I feel like that is a very common answer. Like I talked to uh, Hayden last time. I think you've actually met Hayden before. And um, and often it's just about wanting to understand stuff. So so not only have you done physics, you've done a bunch of different kinds of physicses. Um, and so I really want to talk about how you transitioned from one thing to the other. So your undergraduate degree was in astrophysics and then you moved on and you did your PhD in optics but now you work in medical imaging. So how did you sort of move from one physics area to the other? And then the other thing I want to know how, but also why? Yeah, no, for sure. So it's definitely like a little bit of an unconventional um, pathway so far. So I guess starting at the beginning with the astrophysics, I was just always growing up so interested in space. And, you know, I think it stems back to I was very fortunate that we travelled a lot as a family, Mm -hmm. so plenty of hours on a plane, staring out the window, looking at the stars and being like, what is going on out there? Can I go up there? You know, um, you know, so I think that that's where that stands for. And so then when I got a bit older and I found out, oh, you know, there's things, big organizations like NASA and, mm-hmm. you know, you can actually go to space, you can go to the moon, you can do all these things, you know, and that therefore there are these people, you know, underneath studying all this stuff. So I think definitely there was also just that intrigue factor that, um, you know, there's so much more out there than just mm-hmm. what's going on around us. Um, so when I, my brother was a few years older than me. So when he was getting ready to go to university, I went along to the open day, yep. got all the brochures and stuff. And then I found this one called space science and astrophysics. And I was like, Oh, that just sounds, that sounds amazing. very cool. It just sounds very right. cool. Even if you're not interested in science or physics, space science and astrophysics just sounds like, yeah, very like sci-fi, I reckon. 
That's right. And I mean, you know, later did I learn that, oh, that is, is sort of like the name degree. You still just do a Bachelor of Science, but you get these cool <laughs> letters at the end yeah. of that degree. Um, and so went through undergrad, just loved it, loved learning, loved all the maths, loved everything like that. And then I got to honours and that's sort of that first time that you can start to choose a research project. And so I was yeah. still very heavily um, keen on the space science and astrophysics. So I joined the Cosmic Ray Group um, at the University of Adelaide. Which also sounds very cool, Tess. Sorry, just to interrupt. I, yeah, I joined no, the Cosmic Ray Group, you know, just casually the Cosmic Ray Group. That's right. And um, so cosmic rays are, are really high energy particles that enter the Earth's atmosphere and we don't really know where they came from. So my project was trying to help identify where, where they were coming from. So that yep. really, that was fantastic. And that was using a big um, collaboration out in um, the desert in Argentina. There's a bit, there's oh, cool. a big um, array out there that, that watches and collects all these cosmic rays. So again, that, they, that drove that interest of like an that science is also very collaborative. It's not yeah. just something that I do by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but then towards the end of the honours year, we um, you also take classes um, yeah. and so doing physics courses. And um, there was a guest lecturer, um, Professor Tanya Munro, came to speak to us and she's currently the Chief Defence Scientist of Australia. Yes. And she was talking about all these things like optical fibres and, and photonics and all that. And and, um, and then uh, there came, so I finished my honours year and there was an opportunity to choose where I wanted to study um, for my PhD project. And the opportunity came up to work under Tanya Munro. And so I, I took that. And another thing as to why I made that transition is the application for the um, optics and the photonics was developing um, medical sensors. So we were ultimately wanting to look for proteins in blood to help sort of diagnose if people have um, a disease or not. And so that really, you know, piqued my interest in terms of getting to do amazing science and amazing physics, but potentially having that health outcome and that, you know, impact on on people, um, but still being able to do amazing science. Um, and so then after the end of, of that amazing journey, which I had an amazing time um, working with, with photonics, making optical fibres, mm. developing new sensors, doing all that stuff, um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do in my career. So I must admit, and I, and I do say this to any of the students that I have and stuff, it actually took a little bit of time off. I thought, no, research is not for me. Mm. Um, it's not something that I see myself doing. I went on a holiday um, with my family and I came back and I was like, oh, hang on, um, I don't think there's anything else that I'm really that good at and, and I really need a job. So I started looking and I was like, okay, maybe I just wasn't quite in the right field. So even though I was very passionate about everything that I'd done during my PhD, I, I just decided to look a bit broader. Um, mm-hmm. And then I came across this opportunity at the University of Sydney um, to get into something called medical physics. And I must admit, like, even to that point, even though I'd been in physics for a long time, I wasn't like 100% sure really what that entailed. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, it, it is a very broad field, but, you know, it's all about sort of using physics to like improve imaging, to improve health outcomes, sort of like that. But it, it's sort of taking, it's looking at first from a physics and a science point of view yeah. and then sort of finding that translation to benefit patients. So it's like, so yeah, using your knowledge of physics and the mechanisms to basically improve these technologies so then c- clinicians themselves can be using like these better approaches to you know looking for tumors or cancers or targeting radiation where it needs to go and and that kind of stuff that's right like it's sort of bridging that divide because unfortunately a lot of clinicians and doctors and surgeons stuff they don't have the time to dedicate um, thought or let alone actual research to improving say the way that they image or the way that they're able to uh, then treat the patients and stuff. So it's like that's where we can come in and, and offer that that solution of we know how X-rays work, we know how MRIs work, but can we tailor that to your specific need for yeah. a specific clinical application? 
Okay, so I love this. So before we we're going to get into some nitty gritty of some of the stuff that you've you've done and you're going to be doing, you are currently doing. But before we do that, one more question about you because a lot of people probably don't know Tess. You are also an elite athlete. Um, you have played professionally in the top Belgium field hockey league. You've also played for the Australian under twenty one women's field hockey team and the Australian national women's ice hockey team. And you like winning World Cups and stuff. How do you juggle that? The fairly, the often fairly intense world of academia and research with these, what I would call like fairly impressive extracurriculars. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, sometimes it can be um, a struggle, but I think just because I grew up um, as sport being such an important part of my life, that from an early age, I just learned to have great time management, um, juggle, you know, training schedules, work schedules, study schedules, um, and then also like a little bit of sacrifice. So sometimes that mm-hmm. means, you know, you, we didn't go out, um, you know, with friends on Friday night because you had an early training Saturday morning or that yeah. you had to finish work that you didn't have time during the week to finish. Yeah. Um, but I think it, they lend hand in hand because um, everything that I've learned from my sports side, so discipline, hard work, how to work as a team, mm-hmm. um, I can translate to my academic career yeah. um, where you know, academia is extremely competitive, um, mm-hmm. but it's also a, a team sport in a lot of ways. Yeah. So in terms of being able to manage um, those things, uh, I think go hand in hand. But most certainly, like even still now, um, uh, well, when we're not in Sydney lockdown, um, <laughs> I'm normally on the ice three to four times a week with my yeah. coach, Jeffrey O'Hara. Um, and so that means, you know, starting at 5 a.m. a couple of days a week uh, and then, you know, tra- training in the gym after work and stuff like that. So, you know, but now, you know, I've done it for so many years. I, I definitely wouldn't have it any other way. Um, and, yeah, it just keeps things interesting both on the ice and in the lab. And I'm sure um, ice hockey is probably like a good way to relieve some stress. I've seen a few games and there's like a little bit of pushing sometime. Yes, definitely. Well, um, Sophie is, is one of the Adelaide Rush's biggest super fans. Such a super fan. Um, Got a scarf and everything. Love it. <laughs> that's right. And, and that's right. It is true. Definitely. Uh, sometimes when you've had a bad day in the lab, nothing goes right. There's nothing better than, you know, being able to hit a little bit of vulcanized rubber as hard as you can and <laughs> or hit another person and it be totally legal and it not be assault. So, yeah, it's definitely a good thing. Love it. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about physics and medical imaging. My name is Sophie Calabretto, and I'm joined with our expert guest, Tess Reynolds from the ImageX Institute. So, Tess. Yes. First, I want to talk about Acrobeat. So, I've I've written down what that acronym is, but obviously you're going to explain this to me a little bit more. So, it stands for Adaptive Cardiac Cone Beam Computed Tomography. So, you were actually a finalist for the Eureka Prize for Outstanding Early Career Researcher for this work. Tess, what is Acrobeat? Can you just even maybe start by unpacking that acronym for us? Sure. There's a lot of words in there and um, it we spent a lot of time trying to get the name down to as cool as it is. So I think acronym is a great can, name. It's perfect. It's a great name. But yeah, so almost to understand the acronym, we almost we have to start at the end and work backwards. So that cone being computed tomography at the end, mm-hmm. also just known as CBCT for short, um, is a very common medical imaging technique. So it's an X-ray imaging modality. Mm-hmm. And so if you've ever um, broken a bone or, you know, I've broken bones in both my hands playing field hockey, so you go to the emergency room and you'll have, you most likely have an X-ray. So that would just be a 2D image. Yeah. So th- that's very common. 
But sometimes you need to have a more views to understand what's going on. Yeah. You want a 3D image. So if you were to take a whole series of x-rays at, at all different angles all around the body part of interest yeah. and then put them all together and you mm -hmm. get a 3D volume. And so that's what cone beam CT is. So it's just about taking a series of x-ray projections mathematically combining them, you get a nice 3D image. So cool. this is very common um, in things like dentistry. They use cone beam a lot. But Ooh. another place and where I'm interested in is radiotherapy. Yep. So radiotherapy is a um, common treatment for cancers and it is often used to treat lung cancer. Now, the problem is... Um, Can I just anything? guess? Is yes. it that lungs yes. move? Yes, it is. Is that lungs <laughs> I was move like, and your heart moves? Oh, yeah. yep. Sorry. So that's a real that, that's a real problem. So you know, definitely, I, I'm a big fan of Instagram. I like to take uh, photos of my friends' dogs and stuff. And what's really challenging is when they're running around, you're trying to get that cute picture blurring. Yep. So that's the same thing that about, unfortunately, whilst I can just continue to take more photos of the dog until I get that perfect one, um, if our tumor's moving because of the breathing or the heart rate, um, you're going to end up with a blurry tumor. And that means when the clinicians come in to tell you exactly where they want that radiation pointed, mm -hmm. um, they're not going to have a clear idea of exactly what's going on. So that's where um, sort of the genesis of this work um, came from was using respiratory adaptive cone beam imaging. Unfortunately, the standard way to take these images is that the imaging hardware doesn't adapt to the patient at all. It just says, you know, too bad, whatever the patient's doing, I'm just going to take the images regardless of what's going on. But instead we thought, well, hang on, actually let's make the imaging hardware do the work for us. So mm. if we're monitoring how that movement is, is happening, so initially it was done with the respiratory motion. So if we're monitoring how the patient is breathing and then actually speeding up and slowing down how the um, x-ray acquisition is going, we can mitigate that motion. Right. So basically now, you're, you're taking x-rays in time with the breathing. Exactly. And so now you might go back and go, oh, hang on, Acrobeat had cardiac in there yep. and you've been talking about respiratory. So then my role when, when I started at the University of Sydney was to adapt this technology to heart imaging. Sure. So both in a radiotherapy context, um, if your tumour is very close to the heart, so it's centrally located, you then have both respiratory and cardiac motion. Yep. So you need a way to account for both. But then this also gave us the opportunity to expand into other areas um, where you just have cardiac imaging. So this could be for, for cardiology, for example. So the whole idea is just that we're getting now that, that whatever is taking the x-ray image to beat in sync with the patient. So therefore, no longer have any motion. We have great image quality um, and we're making the hardware do all the work. That sounds very cool. So why is technology like Acrobeat significant? Yeah, so it just provides an opportunity to potentially assist the amazing work that clinicians are already doing and giving them that next sort of generation of image quality so that they can continue to improve on techniques that they're working on. So again, as I, I highlighted, like, you know, radiotherapy, we want to continue to be able to treat all lung cancers equally. So at the moment, there is that preference to just treat tumours that are um, located on the outside of the lungs where they've right. only got that respiratory motion. But as you get closer to the heart, because obviously you don't want to irradiate the heart, the esophagus, stuff like that, because unfortunately that leads to poor outcomes for the, the patients who survive their cancer treatment, but then have subsequent health issues because of that excess radiation. So if we have a better way to image we can trust that we're going to deliver that radiotherapy right to the target and therefore treat a broader range of people. 
for a cardiology context, um, when you're having minimally invasive procedures, so that could be something like a valve replacement or a, um, mm. a heart, um, a pacemaker placement, um, you know, if we can give them additional imaging that they get outside of the operating theatre, right in that operating theatre, it can help with decision-making, it can reduce the chance of secondary surgeries, um, and, again, which is all just focused about giving a better experience to the patients by allowing the clinicians to have access to these amazing images. There's just one more area that we're sort of on the cusp of, of, of getting into, which is um, a new technique for treating arrhythmias. So that's oh. an extremely common problem all around the world. Um, but, unfortunately, there's, there's a small percentage of um, arrhythmic sufferers who conventional catheter ablation or medication cannot help them that just their arrhythmias are are too significant um so now they're looking at using radiotherapy machines to actually use radiation so even though i just spoke about oh we do not want any radiation near the heart (laughs) at all there is now some new research out saying well actually if we we're really specific and we um, ablate using a radiation on the heart there's significant improvements um for these people is this all still theoretical like when does this get used by people what's the process that you know you come up with these ideas you adapt the technology when does this make its way into hospital we are it's sort of that sort of middle stage so a few years ago we came up with the concept we tested in simulation where we sort of have um digital people that we can x-ray completely safely um because it's all just done on on your computer and then we move into um this sort of second stage which is using what we call phantoms which is virtually just like a dummy person in terms of it's all made out of plastics and other materials that again we can image without any consequence of um irradiation to the you know patient and you're not gonna hurt you're not gonna accidentally hurt the dummy if something goes wrong no that's right you you can image them as much as you want and there's going to be no side effects um so we've just concluded um what our phantom experiment so we've proved that um we can implement acrobat we can adapt clinical imaging hardware and so then the next stage would be um to test this in animals yeah um because again that just represents um one way um and that we can be sure that there's no harm to the animal and therefore no harm to the people. Um, so, yeah, so we're still like, you know, uh, I would say sort of five years away from maybe seeing mm-hmm. this in the clinic. But in saying that, sometimes if you get good results early, things can be expedited through clinical yeah. trial and all that stuff. So we are a little bit away for anyone coming and being treated with an acrobat scan. But some of our other adaptive work, so that adaptive respiratory um, work that I briefly mentioned before, mm-hmm. that has actually just finished its clinical trial oh, um, wow. here at a local um, local Sydney hospital, um, and that's shown great results. So you can see that, uh, you know, it's close, but it, it's not quite there to actually treat a patient just yet. 100%. All right, so stick with us for part three as we delve more into Tessa's work. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're talking about physics and medical imaging. My name is Sophie Calabretto, and I'm joined by our expert guest, Tess Reynolds from ImageX. So, Tess, now we're going to talk about some new work of yours that I'm very excited to talk about, and it has to do with spines. 
So just to begin with, can you tell us a little bit about this novel 3D imaging technique that you've developed? Yes, no, for sure. So I'm really excited about this next body of work that I've sort of transitioned into. Um, and again, it's it's all about imaging during surgery, but this time it's for orthopedic surgery. Oh, so okay, this is cool. anything to do um, with the spine, um, with the knees, the bones, anything like that. Bone but, um, things. <laughs> bone things. <laughs> Um, but focusing in on the spine, um, as probably we all know, our spines are pretty long. That's a pretty yeah. big chunk of anatomy from the neck down to your sacrum. You know, that that's a, there's a large piece of real estate. Now, unfortunately, in the interventional suite, um, when you image and you get these great 3D images, you've only got about 17 centimetres of coverage. So um, unless you're a little baby, your spine that's, is probably bigger than yeah. 17 centimetres. Look, I'm not great at estimating things, but I am pretty sure my spine is longer than 17 centimetres. Exactly. Um, and so therefore, it's really difficult to in-room while you're in the surgery to actually be able to visualise the entire spine in, in a single image. Actually, it's just not possible right now. Yep. So that's where um, I come in, which is really lucky, and that <laughs> I have developed um, the sort of first protocol that allows you to actually extend that field of view all the way out to 80 centimetres, which yeah, wow. allows you to capture the entire spine or yep. any long anatomical um, site for that matter. But mm -hmm. we are targeting the spine at the moment. And so it's drawing from um, CT, uh, which is just computer t um, tomography, which is, you know, probably people are quite familiar with that. With the CT TV scan, yeah. CT scan, that type yep. of stuff. And so that, you know, acquires it images in a helical um, form, um, which typically has thought, oh, not been possible to bring that same imaging uh, technique into the hybrid theatre, but we've been able to do that and, and show um, great results being able to say, hey, look, you can see the whole spine if you want to um, in 3D in room. That's pretty significant. So I know that this uh, work is now a collaboration with Johns Hopkins University and Siemens Healthcare. They're two big names in healthcare. How do you set up a partnership like that? Yeah, no, it's really amazing that I get to work with such um, big names in the healthcare industry. So it started first with partnering with Siemens Healthcare. Yeah. So to actually test out any of these new ideas that we have, either with Acrobeat in the adaptive imaging or looking at um, the orthopedic imaging, we needed a way to actually modify the existing clinical hardware to allow us to do something that's not normal. So yeah. luckily, a few years ago, we reached out, we sat down um, with, with a bunch of different people, but Siemens were the ones who um, wanted to work with us and gave us this additional piece of hardware that gives us control of the system to sort of allow us to do whatever we want so it's right. it's very similar to how they do their R&D um, yep. in their uh, labs um, so we you know there a lot of the safeties are taken off and stuff like that so it allows that flexibility but then it also does mean that um you know I'm in charge of a five million dollar machine and there's no <laughs> safeties and I can do what I want with it so there's definitely been a few times where I've got myself in a few tricky spots with it <laughs> But yeah, so that so then um, we're actually the only site in the world outside of Siemens with this level of access and control. Oh wow! So you are like the research and development team, like number two, basically. Pretty much, and so that's yeah. it. So then, uh, when we you know start to present uh, on the work about Acrobat and stuff at international conferences, um, this group uh, led by Webb Stamen at um, John Hopkins University reached out to us and we we're like, hey, you know, we've been working on this, but we've never been able to take um, you know new trajectories and new imaging um, pathways to the next level. 
can we collaborate with you? Like, can you start to implement Mm -hmm. some of the things that we're thinking about? And so we said, yes, like 100% for sure. We love this. And so then through that, it got me thinking about new ideas. Um, And so John Hopkins were really focused in lots of orthopedic um, applications. So that's what got me thinking about, okay, can we do this extended field of view imaging? Okay, so Tess, now just before we go, I need you to indulge my macabre side. Um, And as we've discussed, a lot of these things need testing before they can even come near people. Can you tell us a little bit about your test subjects um, for this this latest novel imaging technique? I sure can, Sophie. So I did allude to it a little bit earlier that um, often a step in the middle between going from concept to people is animal studies. Yeah. Um, now, for these a lot of the orthopedic and, and spine projects that I've been working on, we have been using animal cadavers. So, uh, again, that um, means that we don't have to worry about um, ghosts and stuff because, uh, you know, the animal has passed. But we've been using both sheep and pigs. Little piggies. <laughs> Well, actually, giant pigs. Giant pigs, admit, yeah. So all uh, pigs to I, me are little piggies. But, yes, pigs are very large animals. This is true. Now, I must admit, like, you know, I grew up in Adelaide. I now live in Sydney. I have a city through and through. have not <laughs> spent much time in the country. So definitely it's been a bit of a wake-up call to um, work out where my bacon and um, lamb comes from. But um, it, it's been very, very fascinating to learn sort of how to um, go through the process of, of, of doing um, ethically correct research. So making yeah. sure that um, – all the ethics is in place and then learning um, sort of how similar a, a pig spine is to a human spine. So they're very good surrogates. So anything that we do in the pig, you know, we can sort of gives us a good idea that we'll, what we're doing will uh, reflect to humans. Um, but, yeah, but definitely, unfortunately, uh, with some of the procedures that we've been doing, there's a few days between when we do the initial imaging and then we mm-hmm. come back to do a procedure. Ah. And, unfortunately, um, that the smell of these oh, animals. Oh, no, you is- just have to leave them out. Well, they do go into a freezer. They do go okay. into a cold room. Um, but that is still, it's not quite not enough. enough. Um, <laughs> it's not enough. And especially for someone who was a physicist and never thought that there would be anywhere near a um, cadaveric animal it it the smells are things that I will never be able to forget, um, and especially you know I know it's bad when our collaborating surgeon Dr. Andrew Kanawati even said you know this is bad the smell is bad so you know he's a surgeon he's seen a lot of things smelled a lot of things literally and, and cuts people open for a living yeah. and he's gone like guys a bit gross <laughs> this is bad so you know a little expert tip if you ever find yourself in front of a um, animal cadaver that you're operating on. Go get some Vicks vapor up and put that inside your mask. And that is, is that real? Through. I think I saw that yeah. in a movie once. That's totally real, where you rub the yeah. Vicks vapor rub like just like underneath your nose, so all you can smell is that, as opposed to yeah. So and that worked. So that was the only thing that got us through. So beautiful. I think I saw that on the X Files. So that's really like life imitating art. Anyway, thank you so much, Tess. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Um, And thank you, everyone, for listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-related content, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you loved the show, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That's Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. My name is Sophie Calabretto, and once again, I'd like to thank our expert guest, Dr. Tess Reynolds. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. 
That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.